The Road to Tarascon Kant Although I neglected to tell him the town was a very solitary red spot on an old Michelin tourist map, initially in the conversation. Based on our excellent working relationship in the past, he agreed and told me the house would only be utilized with the owner's express permission. Knowing full well, no such consent would be obtainable. With hostilities reaching a final stage, casualties desperately needed a firm roof over their heads, with well-organized medical treatment, before being loaded into transports and shipped back to England to recuperate. The broken wooden door needed a good shove, despite Robert putting his shoulder against the splintered surface and pushing hard. With a crack, the whole thing gave way, both doors crashing against the inner recesses of the inside wall, with dust and debris falling in tiny pieces from destroyed plasterboards in the ceiling. The grand stone staircase was missing several handrails in the main entrance hall, and the balustrades were long gone as shreds of a long-forgotten red carpet lay ripped and torn up in places on the stairs. The flashlight beam revealed piles of rubbish and broken furniture smashed and ruined in the passageways, the window frames in the front room splintered and their casements in pieces or obliterated. Piled up against the sides of a long stone fireplace covered in fine plaster dust, the remains of several green-covered dining room chairs lay crumpled together and ruined beyond repair, and in the grate, the embers of a recent wood fire smoldered on the hearth. The windows in these rooms were blown apart and devoid of glass panes, except for a single floral curtain, hanging at an angle reminiscent of a ship's sail drifting alone in the fog. The house's main structure had managed to survive intact from the continuous hours of German artillery bombardment. This should be fine, Robert said, turning around full circle to examine the room. I'll instruct the engineers to install wooden panels on these windows to keep out the rain and wind. Curious about the occupants' whereabouts, I walked along the flagstone hallway, stepping over the legs of an upturned chair wedged against the sidewall. I wondered, could this be the wrong house? Had I been mistaken and caught up in the excitement of not checking the photograph more closely? Then to my sheer delight, in the center of the circular tower room, a rather grubby black baby grand piano appeared to have survived intact. Putting away those thoughts to savor, I tiptoed across the floor to investigate the maker's mark engraved inside the piano's lid. A small round table jammed underneath the body of the piano forced the damaged cover to remain open. Not being able at all to resist the temptation, I ran my gloved fingers along dusty keys. The instrument's mechanism producing a clunking sound, and a continuous reverberation echoed around the room. Leaving the dying notes of the chord to continue their dulcet tones, I pulled out the square piano stool lodged under the window's inner ledge. I was trying to envisage my mother doing the same thing. No, don't think about matters you can't change. If she was here, then she was long gone, I told myself. Curious to see if the black box seat contained anything interesting, I lifted the lid and saw the familiar names of Chopin and Bach. Underneath the music pieces, inviting my attention, was a plain black folder squashed between the frozen expressions of the maestro's faces. Freeing the sheath, I brushed off the dust and placed the album on the piano casing. My cautious self took over and, sheepishly, I opened the soft velvet cover and discovered masses of black and white photographs stacked on top of one another, all in excellent condition. Holding out one tiny delicate image, I tried to envisage the photographer's position, and if not for the fog, I would have been able to see the outline of the ancient rose garden and the surrounding stone walls. Another image revealed a group of people, their arms linked together, laughing gaily at the photographer. Their faces were too indistinct in the fading light. He's whispering something to her. 
The tall figure of an elegant lady, holding a baby wrapped in a shawl, caught my eye. Turning the paper over, I realized a message was scribbled on the reverse side in pencil. Blowing on the writing to remove the fine particles of dust, I read. 1917 Evandale, Vera, and me. Squeezing my eyes shut, I turned the photo over and stared at the woman, dropping the flimsy paper and watching it flutter away out of reach, underneath the instrument. For a moment, I failed to remember the war. I can't believe it, I cried. Then I did remember. This was a copy of an identical photo, one of many family portraits packed in my suitcase on my departure from Sydney in 1937. A tentative smile spread across my face. Sometime in the past, in the middle of this spacious room, amidst the detritus of war, my mother took refuge from the life she loathed. Am I the cause of this? I said out loud. Robert stood in the doorway and watched me going through a sort of inner torment, my eyes screwed shut and tears glistening on my cheeks. Anything? He asked, leaning his tall frame against the piano. Careful, I don't think this grand old lady's stable, I said, holding the photo out to him. My mother, I said tentatively, I have a replica of the same image. She must have taken this one with her when she decided to leave Australia. You are sure? He asked, standing up and crossing his arms, observing his head nurse's flawless features. I reached over and turned the image around so he could read the writing on the back. Evandale, South Australia. My birthplace, I said. Well, well, he replied, passing the image back. Now I know the reason you wanted to see this place. I knew you were up to no good when you mentioned a mysterious house. I was overwhelmed by this discovery, grasped the photo against my coat. We ought to be getting back, he declared. I'm taking this with me, I said, placing the photo back into the album and tucking the whole thing under my arm. Tomorrow, the remainder of the contingent can be ready to move, and I want to get this place set up and operational sooner than later, he stated. His thoughts were now running to more pressing concerns. Turning to go, he uttered. I'm glad you found her. With strong willpower, the major was my safety net, a tall, thin man with deep-set brown eyes and robust Welsh features. From the sidelines, I had watched many times as he took on more and more demanding responsibilities in his role as the unit's head surgeon. Returning to the front entrance, we stood side by side on the stone steps watching an approaching vehicle shoot through the gap in the wall. Two identical army jeeps screeched to a stop, throwing up sprays of gravel from the driveway. The second vehicle had a stretcher attached on the back, and both jeeps bore the white star of the American army on their green hoods. I sighed in relief and walked towards the jeep parked at a hasty angle. An American soldier perched on the front unslung his M1 rifle and pointed the gun's barrel at Robert's chest. You that limey doctor? He called, indicating the spot where Robert was standing. We heard you were on patrol around these parts, looking for a lost house. The man who spoke exhibited a cigar stub jerking up and down from his lower lip. He gave the impression of a notable actor in a Hollywood gangster movie I had seen in London on my last leave. I stifled a laugh and kept this sentiment to myself. Yes, Sergeant, I am. Robert saluted. The sloppy salute in return and afterthought. We've got a wounded man here. He said, pointing to the back of the jeep. Get you to help him if you will. Robert walked to the second vehicle parked at right angles to the steps, he noted the front wheels were hemming in the ambulance from both directions. He lifted the blanket and saw blood congealing from a head wound near the man's right ear. How long ago did this happen? Robert asked, 
lifting the unconscious soldier's hand and feeling for a pulse. Frowning, he stepped away, his facial muscles clenched along his jawline. Reckon about an hour or so? The soldier told him, leaning against the jeep. He watched in fascination as Robert bent over to examine his colleague. That ridiculous brown cigar stub was becoming a continual source of amusement for me. All right, Vera? Can you get my bag for me? Robert said, proceeding to study the head wound. In anticipation, I had already opened the ambulance's back doors, grabbing the doctor's ready bag. Sliding the photo album to the left of the wooden bench and closed the metal doors with a sharp bang. Here. I said, propping the small kit bag up on the back end of the seat. Gripping his stethoscope, he bent over and listened to the soldier's breathing. Sounds okay to me. The wound's not fatal, but he needs urgent attention in a field hospital. Is this man your officer? Robert asked. Yeah, Major Durster. Our CO. Another soldier intervened. A soldier wearing a single stripe of a private straightaway distanced himself from the bloody end of the stretcher. It's a mere bullet graze, he said to the wounded officer. The young man was struggling to sit up. You're going to be all right, just stay there and rest. I'll put a firm bandage around your head to stem any more bleeding. Head wounds tend to bleed more than most, but the injury will require a few stitches. I'll give you morphine for the pain, Robert said. Not quite in order, but the best result under the circumstances. Well, why not here? A tall soldier with short blonde hair turned around. I could sense by his tone there was some sort of bitterness about him. He indicated the house, the fog rolling in again, swirling mist shrouding the ancient stones. Robert recognized the man's rank. Lieutenant. Too late to start back now, and it's not as though we're amid the front line up here, he remarked, making his way up the stone steps. He had an easygoing stride to his walk and turned to catch my eye. As us British referred to them, I wondered how these Yanks displayed such a laid-back attitude. Not worrying about winning or losing, the Americans I had the pleasure of hearing in my nursing duties spoke as though they had already won the war. Time to adjust my annoying glasses and move across to Robert, who picked up his bag and walked back towards the ambulance. Trapped by the jeeps, he murmured, now the American officer was out of earshot. We can't leave. I bent over to do up my shoelaces, sensing a pang of jealousy in Robert, not unmingled with scorn for these men. We could stay, I said. We have adequate medical supplies and enough ration packs in those boxes in the back. You were right. Robert replied. He watched the American soldiers lift the stretcher off the jeep and hurry up the steps and on through the shattered doorway. We would be safer here and not exposed on the road, I said. These soldiers are well armed and can radio in if we encounter anything, and I'm in desperate need of a cuppa. He continued to watch the Americans take control of the situation. I'll locate the kitchen. The water may still be running. I said, shrugging my shoulders to my unanswered suggestion. I know you're right. Robert said. We'll gather up all our medical kits, including all those spare blankets. We'll make do until morning. The lieutenant came back outside. His thick fair hair pushed back off his face made him appear younger. A boy, I thought, trying hard to be a man, taking everything in his stride. There was, I thought, a strong assumption of superiority in this man. I watched and suddenly had a rash desire to rush up and kiss him. Then he instructed in a firm voice for his men to set up a perimeter. This was the difference between nations, who were not experienced and endured three years of war and destruction.
We'll take turns outside to keep watch tonight, he ordered. Steward, McBean, you're up first. Check out the half-track. Both men grunted, then trudged off down the driveway. Can I help you with those, miss? The officer leant against the ambulance, holding open the door. Right, I'll need those boxes there. Indicating the wooden boxes jammed under the side bench. And we'll use those extra blankets for your CO, but I'll get those, I said, smiling at him. By the way. My name is Nurse Vera Lawson. 31st British Medical Unit. He nodded. Lieutenant Angus McGregor, at your service. A Scott? I inquired. Yeah, my parents immigrated to the States about 30 years ago, he said. He shouldered the Red Cross supply boxes with ease and headed towards the steps. I noticed his broad shoulders and well-kept uniform. British soldiers resented the Americans' easy access to materials and equipment, a fact lacking from the start of the war and getting scarcer. I caught up with him struggling with a pile of those awful rough army blankets I so detested, and within its folds, I had concealed the photo album for safekeeping. Entering the broken front door, I tripped on a cracked stone step and dropped the whole pile onto the flagged floor. Bugger! I burst out. The American laughed. Let me, he said, grabbing both my hands and pulling me to my feet. This yours? He asked bending to pick up the album and exposing a picture I hadn't noticed before. Yes, I said, gulping in horror at the image he held in his right hand. In the fading light, this photo gave the impression it was more recent. This picture told a similar story ripped in one corner, the same dark-haired woman standing here on the front steps. Next to her, impressive in his black uniform, was the figure of a German officer laughing into the woman's eyes. She the broad who lives here? He asked turning the picture over and checking the other side. This broad, as you call her, happens to be my mother. I blurted out, shocked at my admission. And the crowd? Your father? He asked, a stern expression on his face. You German too? His hand reached down to unholster his sidearm. I jumped back and held the photo to my side. No, no, of course not, I stammered. Suddenly I was terrified of this giant soldier. Let's see your ID, lady, he ordered. Both of you. He jerked his chin in the doctor's direction as Robert materialized through the door to investigate the commotion. Buck. He yelled to his sergeant. Check them out, will you? I think we have captured us a couple of spies. The doctor stood quite still. I knew he would waste no time refuting the allegation. Now see here, lieutenant. He said with his hands on his hips. Why don't you get on your radio and ask your superior officers to check with the British medical contingent in Avranche? We are who we say we are. There's no point, assuming something you know nothing about. Buck. The lieutenant repeated. Are you listening? Get on the blower. I want answers. The bulky sergeant, the stub of his cigar still held between pursed lips, grabbed the portable radio in his right hand and pressed the send button. Checkmate King 4. This is Black Rook. Over. He'd lost patience with their supposed allies. Squeezing his eyebrows together, he frowned. He didn't trust anyone anymore. Chapter 2 continues tomorrow.